Our global climate is changing. The world is seeing the effects. What role do you play? Let's dive into the world of science and see what climate change is doing to our environment. Welcome to Streaming Science, your one-stop spot for science on the go. Streaming Science is a student-run podcast series out of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, focused on increasing science literacy through interactive conversations with scientists in your community. I'm your host, Diana Markham, and today I'm joined by Dr. Larkin Powell to talk about him and his research. Would you like to tell everyone a little bit about yourself, Dr. Powell? I'm Larkin Powell. I'm a wildlife biologist in the School of Natural Resources here at UNL. All right. My first question is, how did you get into science? Well, if I go way back, I was in 4-H when I was in high school mm-hmm. and really liked the vet science project. I was I really wanted to be a veterinarian. And so I went to a small college in Iowa to take a pre-med program. In my sophomore year, I took an ecology class as an elective and kind of just turned sideways with that and decided that that was the route that was a lot more interesting to me, how mm-hmm. things interacted. And, um, and I didn't have to learn how to cut things apart either to be a vet. So uh, that had a lot of appeals to me. So, yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of the, the transition for me was taking that one ecology class. Yeah, awesome. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about you know, what you do here at the university? Sure. So my position is, the title of it is conservation biologist, animal ecologist. So what the university, I think, hopes that I do is to learn more about species of wildlife, especially species that are of interest to people, either because they're hunted and used for consumptive purposes or because they're of conservation concern. Mm -hmm. And so I think I have a gap over both of those fields. Uh, So I've worked with species that are on conservation concern lists that are not game animals, but then we've also done some work with things like pheasants that are a game species. And then sometimes there's work with prairie chickens that are of conservation concern because they're unique in Nebraska, but they're also a game species in Nebraska. So they're kind of fill both roles. And the other component that I am interested in is how their habitat that those animals use on the landscape, um, how people impact that habitat, and then how that impacts the animals. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more about one of your most recent uh, research projects? So several of the last few years worked with prairie chickens, Mm -hmm. uh, and we started with a project in southeast Nebraska where there were new grasslands available through the Conservation Reserve Program, uh, where farmers were putting land into grass rather than than corn. That project led to us doing some work up in the Sandhills, and the Sandhills covers about a fourth of Nebraska, but a lot of people have never been there, and it's a fairly stable ecosystem, so Mm -hmm. not a lot of work also gets done there from a scientific perspective on wildlife because generally speaking the animals are doing okay but then we don't have any comparisons for prairie chickens like what's the survival rate of prairie chicken nests or prairie chicken adults well we know what it is in areas where they're not doing so great where their habitat has been removed like in the tall grass prairie region Iowa Missouri eastern Kansas but we don't know much about what they're like kind of in their core area where their habitat is more pristine. So our research has has focused on them. And then the most recent thing is that we've looked at how 
wind turbines uh, might impact. So we've got a green energy source, which might be good, but there's also was some indications that turbines might impact prairie chicken populations, not through collisions with the turbines, but mm -hmm. through the birds avoiding being around the turbines. Uh, so Just prairie, kind of like scaring them. Right. So they, they might think that they're like a tree. Mm -hmm. And to a prairie chicken, a tree is not a good thing because that's where all the bad things are. They're the coyotes, the raptors, the okay. things that could kill them hang out in trees, right? So if you put a thing up on the landscape that looks kind of like a tree, the thought was maybe there would be some problems with that. Mm -hmm. So we did an assessment uh, of that, and that's the project that is most recently wrapping up. Okay, that's it. that's really interesting, actually. Okay, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into the long-term turtle population dynamics. Sure. So I'm just curious, like, how did that start? Like, why did you start that program? Sure. So there's a Cedar Point Biological Station is a is a university-owned facility in Ogallala, and we teach classes out there. And I was teaching a class in 2005, and the we were looking for animals that we could trap and mark fairly easily. And painted turtles are, are good for that. You can put traps out in a pond and they'll just come right into the traps and, and in hope of finding some food and then they just can be removed out of these traps alive and put back in the pond and everything is great. We started to look for a pond and we found a rancher had a pond up in the in the hills near the biological station and we went out there and hit the bonanza with the class and everybody had a turtle to hold. I think we had about 24 turtles the first day that we had captured out of this pond. And, and so it became apparent that there was there was a lot of turtles in this pond. You could just see heads everywhere yeah. when you walked up to the pond. And that's a little unusual to see so many turtles in a pond that's not that big. And so it made for an interesting study. And so we came back the next summer with some undergraduate researchers they stayed out there for about a month and a half, and they looked at diet and all kinds of things that they could study over over a month and a half. And we've continued to go out every year then, sometimes with a class, other times with an undergraduate research student. Um, sometimes it's just my family. Uh, my son and my wife and I really like it. So we'll bring a friend along or something, and everybody has a lot of fun catching turtles and measuring their shells and yeah. seeing. And so now we've seen some shifts over time in the population. So during droughts, this pond seems to be a reservoir that still has water on the landscape. So all the turtles from around seem to pile into it. And then as rains happen, then water redistributes on the landscape and the turtles kind of go back to where they might have been before. And so the pond gets a little lower in population size. This summer will be the 12th year that we've we've studied that. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I was going to say it's been going on for, sounds like, a really long time. For your some of your research projects in general, how do you come up with the idea for these projects? Sure. I'm just curious. Well, so the idea for projects comes in a couple different ways. Sometimes there's things that I'm really interested in studying. And so that may define kind of the general focus of the area that I'm headed into. But most of my research, because we're at a land-grant university that is supposed to be helping the state, uh, the citizens of the state, with information, a lot of it is uh, questions that ranchers might have um, about how can I manage my ranch for prairie chickens. It might be uh, questions that the state or federal agencies have. So Nebraska Game and Parks Commission or U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service might ask the question about the uh, prairie chickens and do wind turbines, do we need to worry about where we put wind turbines, where we approve companies to, to put wind turbines on the landscape. Um, and so those are questions that then people actually come to us and say, if you have some space in your research program in the next few years, would you be interested in doing doing this project? Mm -hmm. So 
all those projects take money to, to do, and so we have to f find the funding. And so it's, it's really nice when some, an agency, for example, with the funds uh, set aside to do research like that comes to us and says, could you help us answer this question? Okay. And so that's kind of a win-win for everybody. Yeah. Uh, we, we provide the, the brain power and the people power to get it done, and they provide the funding and, and the interests and help us figure out how to then channel our results so that the, the public can understand them as well. What's been one of your favorite uh, research projects that you've been a part of? Well, the so one of the I'll call this a favorite one, but it also it's not the happiest story. But we did a we did a pheasant research project near Stanton, mm -hmm. um, in in Stanton County, up uh, near Norfolk, Nebraska, and we uh, showed how people could take these grasslands that farmers were setting aside in the conservation reserve program. They'd set them aside for ten years through that program, and they were paid to do that out of annual payment. Um, and then the state paid them just a little bit more if after five years they went in and they disked that field. And um, like so with a tractor actually kind of uh, ran over it with a, uh, a farm implement uh, mm -hmm. that, that disturbs the soil. Okay. And so it doesn't plow it up uh, by the roots, but it kind of it disturbs the soil enough that other plants can get in there and there's some bare soil that other plants can get in and compete with the grass that normally would compete very strongly with these other plants and keep them out. Um, and they might even plant some things like clover or, or other uh, wildflower type things in that time period. So that creates a lot of flowers for animals to, uh, to use and the, the, the pheasants really like them because there's insects that are attracted to those flowers, the pheasants eat the insects. And so we showed that if you do this type of management, you provide the food for these pheasant broods after they hatch, you can triple your impact of uh, production of pheasants in those areas. You really can produce a lot of pheasants. Um, Nebraska hasn't had a lot of pheasants for a long time, and one of the reasons is we don't have a lot of grassland habitat left. So we showed that that could be possible, and that was a fun, a fun project, and that might be nice to stop the story there. But um, two years after we did that project, the corn prices increased. And so a lot of these farmers, as anybody would, actually took their land out of that program. They paid the penalty to remove, to remove the, the land from this grassland program, and they planted their fields back to corn. So all this habitat that had been created for pheasants disappeared. Mm -hmm. And that really got me thinking about the importance of thinking as a wildlife biologist, thinking about economics and politics and how the decisions that individual landowners make out there on the habitat are more influenced by politics and economics um, and what they're doing to support their families than it is by their desire to have wildlife on their land. And so a lot of the things that I do now are also positioned to think about how does this fit into long-term landscape trends and how do we work if the economics are against us, how, how do we work to um, convince landowners to make decisions to put, to keep wildlife habitat out there. Maybe it's for water quality reasons, um, to, to keep nitrates out of drinking water, for example. Uh, grasslands and wetlands are good to protect rivers. Um, 
So maybe rather than talking about you should have songbirds, maybe we should be talking about these types of habitat are necessary to protect drinking water that's important for everybody. Um, so, so that project with the pheasants really kind of taught me a lesson as a scientist mm -hmm. that if my goal was to try to support these populations and their habitats, that it was more than just kind of reporting, here's what the survival rates and the reproduction rates are. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Just kind of curious, what, what really inspires you to, or what did inspire you to become a wildlife conservationist, biologist, and, you know, to continue your research after, I don't know how long you've been teaching sure. and doing research, but after so long? So I... I go back again to that the 4-H experience mm -hmm. that I had. Um, the other thing that I did through 4-H was when I was in college, I worked at a nature center in Iowa that was a 4-H camp. Um, and that also got me excited about kind of teaching end of things. So combined with the interest in the research on seeing the ecology, that's kind of what I got from my ecology class as a, at, at college, with the teaching, that got me into thinking maybe I should be working at a college or a university. And one of the things that really, to this day, I love about working at a university and being a researcher is the stuff that I do is fun, but it's also fun to see what my colleagues here are doing. And we talk with each other and we give ideas to each other. Mm -hmm. So I work a lot with uh, fisheries biologists. I don't know anything about fish, but I do know some things about how to do analysis if you've got marked fish and how to estimate a population size. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we work together and I contribute something to them and then they contribute something to me and say, did you realize with your turtles that you've been studying, you could look at how fast turtles are growing by using a growth curve that we use in our fisheries projects. And so kind of that's the, I, I really enjoy the back and forth mm -hmm. among colleagues, and I, I don't think I would ever enjoy just being an independent scientist out on my own. Um, it's the weekly interactions with friends and, and that are doing similar things and seeing how many interesting questions are being answered. Because um, I think it really is the, it's the questions that, mm -hmm. keep, uh, that keep us interested. And, and the other thing I would say about that is exciting is um, I use radio telemetry for studying a lot of animals. What so we'll stick, a, we'll stick a radio collar on an animal that emits, the, so it's a little collar that has a battery and a transmitter. And the transmitter emits a beep, and we can follow that around with an antenna from a mile away sometimes we can start, and we can hone in on where that animal is, and we can find it out there on the landscape. Having that ability to go back and find an animal that's down in the grass that you would have never seen if you walked past it, and then you can find its nest, or you can find out that it died, and you can see what killed it by the evidence that's there, is kind of uh, the other really big trip that I have as a scientist, is you know for, for three months, we know what's happening to the pheasant population, or to the meadowlark population. We know when they're nesting, we know how many eggs they've laid, we know when a nest fails, and then we know that that female went over here and re-nested. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of fun to know all that information about a population through studying it. If you're, and you have to have interest in, in animals and, and wild animals and, and see 
you know, be interested in their fate. But to know what's going on in all those populations um, is is a lot of fun, and uh, and that's that's part of the interest I think too of a lot of the students that work with me is that keeps us going. It's just the fun things that we find out every day about the you know the reactions that animals have to different situations. Interesting. Okay. So. What's your ultimate end goal as a scientist? Well, I think scientists, there's a lot of different end goals that different mm -hmm. scientists have. One of my goals as a scientist is to understand systems of wildlife well enough to be able to work with the people that use the land and to talk about decisions that they're making and how they might affect wildlife and to come up with programs or solutions that help us feed families, you know, keep keep Iowa and Nebraska farm families on the landscape, um, allow them to be profitable, but also allow us to live in this ecosystem and matrix of, of wildlife. And so I think that's probably my end goal. If, if I contribute something to changes out there on the landscape by the time I'm dead, you know, if there's, if we're doing something different in the way that we approach uh, farm policy or the way that we approach economic systems, if I've contributed a little bit to that, I think that would probably make me happy. That's, that's a great, and that's a great answer. <laughs> I like that. For all of our listeners out there who are mostly going to be middle schoolers, mm -hmm. what advice do you have for for some more inspiring scientists. Sure. Well, so, you know, science has is so broad, and there's, mm -hmm. I have a son in high school right now, and, you know, there's, there's biological sciences, there's physical sciences. You can be interested in chemistry, and I, I guess I would take as many different classes as you can. If you think you're interested in science, take as many different classes as you can. And, you know, my path was that I kind of thought I was headed off into a medical field, and then I took a class, and that changed the direction of my life. And so don't be afraid to listen to your heart and say, I think a shift yeah. is, is where, I'm, uh, where I should be here, and, and uh, because your gut will kind of tell you what you're interested in. Mm -hmm. And so, but you don't have that chance unless you take a lot of different types of classes. So as they get into high school and have some chances to kind of choose which classes they take, I wouldn't just stay in in biology or stay in chemistry. You know, take take as many different classes as you can, and then um, as you even as you go into college, continue to to take some classes on the side and kind of see where your interests lead you, because I th I think that'll it'll lead to a lifetime of, of fun investigations if you're really interested in solving mysteries of science. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with that. There is, I mean, one class that I took my senior year of high school completely changed my mm -hmm. my career path. I was headed towards strictly like investigative journalism and now I'm doing something totally different. Yep. I, so I 100% agree about, with that. Where can we go to learn more about you and your research? Sure. The, the web is probably the, the best way to, to see that. Just Google your name. <laughs> yep. Yes, Larkin Powell is a pretty, uh, there, there was a person in Indiana in the 1880s that was uh, hung for murdering somebody that was had that name. But other than that, I don't know of anybody else named Larkin Powell. So. Okay, so, so pretty good chances they'll find you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> all right. Um, well, that's all I have. Uh, 
for you for you today. Thank you so much for for doing this. It really means a lot, and I love talking to you. I think you've had some great answers. And sure. Thank you again, Dr. Powell, for joining us today and talking about some of your research. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in on this episode of Streaming Science. I hope you learned a little bit more about climate change and the effects it's having on our world. For more information about Dr. Powell, his research, and our program here at UNL, head on over to our website, 